This is episode 306 of the AWS podcast, released on April 3, 2019. Hello everyone and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. Simon Alicia here with you. Great to have you back. And today's the first episode in a special new mini-series we're kicking off, which is called Next Generation Security Conversations, Provable Security in the Cloud. And this is a continuation of the topic I explored with Byron Cook, who's the director of the Automated Reasoning Group, back in episode 266. And we talked about the application of formal verification and automated reasoning here at AWS both for tools that customers use and to prove the correctness of our underlying foundations. For example, like crypto or our virtualization stack. Now it turns out that this was very popular with customers. So I've asked Byron to do a series of interviews with some of the leaders in his field, both inside and outside of AWS, with AWS customers and AWS service team partners that they've worked with. Today's the first in that series. So in a moment, you'll hear Byron interviewing Professor Moshe Vardi, who Byron worked with for 15 to 20 years developing the foundations of formal verification that we're now using here at AWS. Byron and Moshe have a discussion that grounds us in the beginnings of formal verification to applications in industry and scalable customer technologies available at AWS. We hope you enjoy this unique window into compelling stories of the beautiful minds that are revolutionizing cloud security at AWS and across the industry. So let's kick things off. We hope you enjoy and stay tuned for more episodes in the series. Moshe is a good friend of mine. I think we've known each other for maybe 15, 20 years. I don't know exactly when yeah. we first met. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, I... I I was looking at your bio. I had never really looked at your bio, and I'm really impressed by your bio. So I actually want to read your bio in full, if you don't mind. Um, well, there is one we, version. It's very long. It will take the whole, the whole, so the whole hour. So I took the short bio. So, uh, so Moshe is the George Distinguished, and by the way, correct me if I'm getting this wrong, the George Distinguished uh, Service Professor in Computational Engineering and Director of the Ken Kennedy Institute for Information uh, Technology at Rice University. He's the recipient of many awards. I'm going to uh, uh, only go through a few. So uh, he's the winner of the Girdle Prize, the Kanalakis Award, the Cod Award, the Pascal Medal, the Good Award, and the Church Award. Um, and that's just a taste. He's the uh, author of a huge number of papers, over 600 uh, scientific papers, and also two books, one called uh, Reasoning About Knowledge, another one called Finite Model Theory and Its Applications. He's the fellow of... The American Association for the Advancement of Science, the American Mathematical Society, the uh, the ACM Association of Computing Machinery, the American Association of Artificial Intelligence, the, uh, the list goes on. Uh, he's also a member of the U.S. National Academy of Engineering and the National Academy of Science and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, etc. He holds six honorary degrees. He is now the senior editor of the CACM, the communications of the ACM, and he was the editor-in-chief for, for 10 years. And uh, he's, the develop, he's the author of one of my favorite papers in my field, the Atoma Theoretic Approach to Automatic Program Verification, which we're going to talk about. And he's also the owner of the best mustache in our field. And it's a, it's a shame Should that... Should have started with that. <laughs> it's a shame that this is a podcast because people can't see it. But if you Google Moshe Varde... Uh, you'll see pictures of his mustache, and it's quite it's quite nice. And you have a, an amazing. So your H index is insane. It's 102. So, oh, 102. Okay, yeah. I'm happy to hear. Last time I looked, it's 101. So, so, good, so the good H, news. Yeah. So for those who don't know, the H index is is if you have an H index of 102, that means you have 102 scientific papers, 
that have at least 102 citations each. So that's, I mean, that's, I think mine's a very respectable 40. <laughs> so that, but what that actually means, it means something quite interesting. So you could be, have done the most amazing work, but only done one paper and you'd have an H index of one. Or you could have written 5,000 papers that no one cares about and you'd have an H index of one. So what that means is actually you're quite broad and, and deep at the same time. And so, so it's something that I've been told, but I didn't, didn't really think about in a lot of detail, I was doing a little bit of research last night, is that you're, you're actually very well known for areas, many more areas than I knew, right? So I, so I know your work on formal methods, but you're right. actually known for your work in ethics, but also in databases, et cetera. So, so I, I found that quite impressive. So I, I guess one question that jumped to my mind uh, that might connect between the formal methods. Oh, actually, let me ask you a first question. So what is what is formal methods? What is logic? What is automated reasoning? Can you define those for the... Well, each one is slightly different. Okay. Each yeah. one is slightly different. So uh, logic started as a, as a branch of philosophy that try to essentially formalize what is the correct argument. Mm -hmm. So you, you have, you know, you go back to the sophists who have this, they would argue, and the question is, who wins the argument? And for that, the argument had to be correct. So... First of all, the goal is to identify correct argument. So this is the beginning of logic, kind of, if you want even really kind of for, for many years, for almost 2,000 years, which is a part of philosophy. Mm -hmm. And then in the 19th century, starting with George Bull, it started to become part of mathematics. So, so first of all, George Bull mathematicized logic. He bring algebra into, into what was then, until then, a branch of philosophy. Suddenly it's become really mathematical content. Later on, there is a By the way, what's the difference? So there's with mathematical, it means there's symbols, and there weren't symbols before. No, or? I mean you apply mathematical me methods. You know, we have now Boolean algebras and mm -hmm. Boolean rings, and you start to you start so to there, apply mathematics. Mathematicians start to study it mathematically. Until mm -hmm. then, it was was really as a branch of philosophy. Mm -hmm. And then logic is and, and and there's another. It's a long, very long story. But in the Early 20th century, there is a, what we call foundational crisis in mathematics. People try to understand what are the foundations of mathematics. And there is an attempt to use logic as the foundations of mathematics. Mm -hmm. This was became known as logicism, mm -hmm. founding mathematics based on, on logic. So this is the, kind of the first part. Logic is a, is a, a part, of, part of mathematics. So that's one question. Like what is logic? Logic is the part to try to formalize reasoning. Mm -hmm. And since mathematics is very much about mathematical reasoning and proofs and argument, it seems very natural that logic would serve as a foundation for mathematics. And so today there is a branch of mathematical, mathematical logic, and you find people in math departments and they do different type of uh, mathematical logic. So this is one part of it. Um, automated reasoning is where computer science gets into the picture even though the initial ideas actually have came in by mathematicians, but today it's mostly activity by computer scientists. And they ask, this, active, this act of reasoning that had to be so precise and so symbolic, it seems ripe for mechanization. Mm -hmm. So can we mechanize this, this reasoning that describe mathematical reasoning? And we have been doing it since, I think the first, the, the first paper is in, I think is in the 50, 56. Mm -hmm. I think it was first paper that uh, they start mechanizing logic. So th this is an area of research that goes back since then, which is can we take this reasoning they done logically and can we mechanize it? Because part of the idea of, of, of logic is that the reasoning has to be so precise and symbolic that 
it's, it's ripe for, uh, for mechanization mm-hmm. or for, that's what we call it, automated reasoning. So that's the second part, right? So we talked about logic, we talked about automated reasoning. So formal methods, actually I need to do a little history, I don't know much about the history of the term, mm-hmm. but this is, I would say this goes back to the, to the 60s, mm-hmm. when people are saying, can we use mathematical technique and logical technique essentially to reason about computing system. Oh, I see. So the key, the key, like automated reasoning is about logic, but then, and, is and, about but then logic. Formal, formal methods or formal verification is then applying that again back to applying systems back, which come from computers. Applying back. So, mm-hmm. so people, one of the people who start building computer systems, designing software, hardware, one of the first discoveries, you write your first program and you discover, it doesn't do what I wanted it to do. Mm-hmm. You have an idea in your head mm-hmm. and you write down the program and it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is almost almost everybody's first experience. I write a program, it was so clear, and then I realized that it has to be so precise mm-hmm. that that it's just hard to make it, nobody ever write mm-hmm. a program that's correct the first time. Mm-hmm. You you have, not talking about stupid error, but even mm-hmm. logical error, oh, I didn't consider that case, I didn't think about that case. Mm-hmm. So this is, and not to mention, you know, major bugs, I mean, think of the bugs we're discovering now, you know, uh, 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 bugs in hardware that have been lurking there for, for decades. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to get things right. That's what people have discovered very early on. And then the question is, what do we do about it? And then there was idea that came that we should use mathematics. And again, you find that these ideas go back, you have the whole, but before there was Floyd, mm-hmm. even McCarthy starts saying we need to formalize mm-hmm. things mathematically. Mm-hmm. So now, how do you, what is the right tool to do this? And logic emerges the right tool. Mm-hmm. And so now you can have a confluence of all these things, the formal methods, mm-hmm. and formal, just say it's formal, but typically we use, again, we use logic, even though there are cases where we use, now people talk about probabilistic reasoning, where you need to combine mm-hmm. logic and probabilistic quantitative reasoning, and you went, want to reason about the energy expenditure, expenditures of a program. Right. But it started really with what we call functional correctness. What does the program do what it's supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, does it meet its designer's intent? Mm-hmm and use logic. And in fact, the first attempt was when you look at uh, what the early pioneers did, they did not think about mechanizing it. They were just about, let's do it logically. Mm-hmm. But then automated yeah. reasoning come on forth. Well, it's a big job. The mo- if we can mechanize it, we can make it more efficient. So that actually leads into something else that I wanted to mm-hmm. ask you about. So I, th- well, I mean, let me, let me ask a, a pre-question. Do you program... And what's the largest program you've written in the past uh, 30 years? So if you're talking about you know, coding directly, yeah, yeah. okay, if you're talking about coding directly, then uh, the last actual program I wrote was called Lunch. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a little script uh-huh. that you typed Lunch. Yeah. And this was for the, everybody in the group would get a big smiley face on the screen said, time, to, time for lunch. Right. <laughs> and we will all get up and go together for lunch. So, and this end up, you, don't, you know, do you think that this has enormous social significance? Right, right. <laughs> because it meant that as a group, we all ate lunch together every day. Right. And it's an incredibly bonding, right. you know, it's a bonding mechanism if you want. So um, I, the reason I asked is yeah. because I think of you as very theoretical, uh, but yet you're visiting, like I, when I talk to you, you're often, for example, visiting Intel for the summer, or you have these industrial appointments where you go and you visit yeah, and you, yeah. and you've, we've worked together in previous employers, uh, on, for example, biological reasoning. Uh, and so I'm, so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on 
the the interaction between the applied, the theoretical, the academic, the industrial, industrial research versus academic research, and and how you navigate that that setting, and that that's something that, for example, we're here in the automated reasoning group, always trying to navigate is like, is this research? Is this development? Is this theoretical? Is it applied, etc. I think that you know, kind of. Dividing ourselves into theory and, and yeah. experiment is was not healthy for the field. Uh-huh. I think that uh, we have a, a segment of our of our professional society that's very focused on theory, but I think uh, and I started I was really kind of more of a pure theoretician. Yeah, but the connection between the theory and a the real problem is incredibly fertile, and I think missing it, you're missing a big part. In fact, for Neumann, one of our founding father said he was both a pure mathematician and applied mathematician, has the following quote. He said, mathematics, in the absence of real-life problems, is like water. It flows in the direction of least resistance. And his idea was that when there's a concrete problem, you know, whatever, what do we do? If something is hard, yeah, well, let's be, I'm going to solve something easier because I want to publish a paper. Right, let right. me go to something easier. <laughs> but if it's a concrete problem, well, you just keep attacking it, right? Maybe you say, I'll solve a special case. But that, that, the real problem kind of beckons at you and says, solve me, solve me. Yeah. But I always tell people, don't, don't let them do the abstraction. Yep. You need to understand the real problem so you know that the abstraction, the mathematical problem, really solves the real problem. Yep. And so so I would say is that my kind of exposure to practical problem with the with the positive and the negative, I'll tell you a story a little bit about the negative. Okay. <laughs> started actually was was even when I was at IBM, mm-hmm. and it turns out that it's you know you can do, in my opinion, better theory if you understand the practice better, yeah. and you can do better practice if you understand the theory better. Uh, so another question is uh, so I really I, I this uh, autonomous theoretic approach. So uh, for the uh, average listener, could you describe the result in that in that paper and the, and the impact of that paper? So, and or, I, or papers, I, maybe so, it's papers. So, yeah. So, an idea that uh, kind of went back. I think. Um, I mean, so this kind of go back to when I said that formal method. So the idea, the, an idea in formal method that goes back to, you know, very early, even. Definitely early 60s, late 50s, early 60s started that, uh, that we should be able to, the way we want uh, our systems to behave in order to ensure the system behaving that way, we have to formalize our intent. Mm-hmm. It's not enough, you know, usually what happens is when you write a program, you have some ideas in your head. Or there is a whole area in, in software engineering called require, require, requirement engineering. But very often the requirements are written in natural language. And when I read a natural language, natural language is is ambiguous, and I mean it, it's easy for us to read. But when you actually go to, for example, if you take a document in English, and now you say, okay, let's test the system, then you run into, well, I'm not I'm not completely certain what 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 it does. Mm-hmm. I mean, it turns out that even if you look at things that we all think we fully understand, you look like the x86 instruction set, right? What we call the the industry is industry standard architecture which is, I don't know, more than a thousand different instructions. Some of them are quite complex. And yeah, there is a book that's written in semi-formal language. And it turns out if you go to some of the more complicated instructions and you say, yeah, but what happened exactly in these corner cases? It's not there. Right. 
I mean, in some cases, you have to go to people who build the hardware. Yeah. So they will tell you what really happens in these corner cases. Yeah. So if we want to mechanize things, go back to automation, then it's not, we have, we have let's say, a program, or maybe it's a program in, in a high-level language in C++ or in C, or maybe it's in Verilog, but it's, there is a, an object, a formal, that's a formal object to some extent, but how you want the system to behave, if it's in English, then you have a gap there. Mm-hmm. In natural language, you have a gap. So this idea just goes back, I said, to the 60s, that how we want the system to behave should also be written in some formal language. And this is where kind of logic came. Logic was a language that seemed to have been, you know, Aristotle master, that's what he had in mind, okay? Yeah. Because you had, a, <laughs> you had a language that could specify things with just utter precision. Right. Actually, it's not some Aristotle, but Frege, who conceive of logic as a foundation for mathematics. And he says, if we want to make mathematical statements, they have to be incredibly precise. We need a language that's both formal and has very precise semantics. I mean, this took some decades for all of this to work out between the late 1800s and early 1900s. But by the 1930, we had that language that was very rigorous, rigorous syntax, rigorous semantics, everything was clear. And so we said, let's use this. Is if this can specify any mathematical property, it should be good enough for us. And that language is uh, mathematics with uh, uh, first order logic. Just first combined. of all, just first order, okay. first order logic. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so this is just first order logic. So that's kind of the first part. So this is when you talk about Floyd and Hoare and mm-hmm. Mana. That's the kind of thing they have in mm-hmm. mind: first order logic. Mm-hmm. the The next the next part was uh, is Amir Pnoeli mm-hmm. in uh, mid mid in 1975 to 1977, who realized that the early work was on program, they do what we call transformation, input-output transformation. Mm-hmm. So many program is, okay, I have to compute something. Okay, you give me the data, and I decide I have to make a decision to trade or not to trade. Some yeah. of your client, I'm sure they have algorithmic trading. Here's the data, make a decision, yeah. which is what trade do you want to execute, Okay. So this is one class of problem, and the techniques that they developed in the in the sixties were appropriate mostly for this kind of uh, input-output programs. Mm-hmm. What Pnoeli realized that there are a whole class of systems where this is not appropriate. So Pnoeli came up with the idea that what we need is ongoing interaction. Mm-hmm. And in 1975, he he worked with uh, Nissen Francis, his student, and they start to apply temp- again first-order logic. But now, not to the input-output input, relation, mm-hmm. but to the temporal interaction. Mm-hmm. And they say, okay, we are going to reason in, in first-order logic. And they discover it was very difficult. Mm-hmm. It was clunky. It was, it, was, it was not easy to do. It was, you could do it in first-order logic. In fact, we know that linear temporal logic is equivalent to first-order logic of time. There's a formal equivalence there. Mm-hmm. So Amir Pnoeli wrote a paper in 1977, and he says, the way we are going to reason about ongoing computation ongoing interaction, will be used a logic which is called temporal logic. And this was a logic that was developed by philosophers mm-hmm. going back to the 50s. Okay, mm-hmm. going back prior was mid-50s. Mm. Okay. And Pnoeli says, well, let's, Pnoeli borrow these ideas from the philosophers mm-hmm. and said, we are going to specify the desired behavior of our system using temporal logic. What we want to know really, you know, what does it mean for it to be correct? Correct means absence of errors. Mm-hmm. So we want to know, is it possible for my system to have an incorrect execution? Mm-hmm. So you says, okay, so really, if I, even if I start from a property that says every lock must be released, mm-hmm. really what I want to know, is it possible 
that there is a lock is acquired, it is never released. Yeah. So now I'm looking not really for the property, I'm looking for, for the negation. arrows. Yeah, exactly. So then the, the, that's, I want to know, I want to prove that the program is correct, means error-free. Yeah. And in fact, in some cases, it's, it's, it turns out that in some cases, it's easier for people to specify the error yeah. directly. You think, okay, because you think scenario, what can go wrong? Very yeah. often, you look at the system and you say, what can go wrong? And you say, okay, here's what can go wrong. I require a lock. The lock is never released. The system is, is essentially going to starve. Yeah. And so, but if I, that means now that if I can translate that to essentially object looks like a program. So now I have a one program that describes the, the behavior of the system. I have another small program and all it describes is some bad scenario. And so now I want to know, can these two execute together? Because if they, these two can synchronize, execute together, yeah. that would mean that the program, the bad, the bad, the bad behavior program, found a bad execution yeah. in the in the system. And then it turns out, from from an engineering or proof tools perspective, that problem we know how to solve. That I mean, we know how to solve. Yeah, exactly. So, so you've taken the problem of. I want to prove this program correct to this other problem for which we have some tools which work really we well. We have a lot of tools yeah. to understand kind of the uh, what execution, just execution of, of programs yeah. we understand. Yeah. That, that how yeah. to, to talk yeah. about is kind, all kind of sophisticated, exactly. sophisticated yeah. properties. Yeah. But now we have simply taken these two programs, we merged them, and now we're asking a very simple question over this program. Yeah. And in fact, these questions are turn out to be so simple that now we know it does. We can even, in many cases, we can even even apply them to programs that are not finite state. Yeah, now, exactly. We don't, we don't yeah. exactly have algorithmic solution, but uh, there are many techniques we have, that we, we can reason. We have reason. techniques that work. We yeah. have to reason techniques yeah. to reason about our program yeah. because by now we are asking very much simpler questions about yeah, program. The right. question every lock must be released. That seems a hard question. Yeah. We basically reduce it. Does this program have an infinite execution? Yeah, that's a much simpler, simpler, yeah, simpler right. property to ask. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, so, so, anyways, the, uh, I, I thank you to the listener for indulging me as we talk about my favorite result from Moshe. Um, uh, I had a, some questions from 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 uh, from friends of mine who knew I was going to talk to you today. I wanted to uh, get to them. So, um, for many years, many of us f- were in the theoretical space, working on toy problems. Uh, like when I started doing work in this space, I, I had, I could never have dreamed it would have industrial application and, uh, something in the hardware form hardware world broke around after FDIV, I guess, yeah. but, but you really started to see progress in the two thousands. Uh, and so for Intel really, mechanized and industrialized the application of formal verification and now in in the in uh, software we're, we're really seeing this explosion of this work where what seemed impossible seems possible and so a lot of the old timers now when I'm their executives here at Amazon they see this work they just can't believe that this stuff is working uh, whereas the the younger kids are like oh yeah I applied these tools during my undergrad great uh, so what what why now what happened so there is, this is a, essentially a, a general principle in, in, in technology. When does technology get into adoption? And it has to do with two things. What is the capability of the technology? And what is the cost of the technology? You know, we might be able now to build the, you know, jetpacks, mm-hmm. okay? 
but it's probably too expensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I'm making it up. I don't know exactly what is the cost of jetpacks. But but if you look, for example, a, a, you know, one of another kind of topic that I care a lot, interested a lot about is automation. How does it how does it uh, affect labels? And again, you suddenly see something that happened around 1980. And you see, we started until 1980 where manufacturing volume increases and employment increases. They kind of go together. If you want to manufacture more, you need more people. Mm-hmm. And suddenly something happened in 1980 and you see that from 1980 on, we are manufacturing more with fewer people. And you so say, what happened? And the answer was the combination. You have industrial robots that can do the job, but if they're more expensive than people, you're not going to adopt them. Mm-hmm. But if the if the if the amortized cost of robot, let's say per hour, is lower than you pay what you're going to pay in a manufacturing a, a worker, which is twenty to thirty dollar an hour, if you can push your amortized cost of industrial robots mm-hmm. below twenty dollar an hour, and they can do the job, then then you're going to do that. And people don't understand. Formalification has has an economic dimension. Mm-hmm. It costs money. It's expensive. You know, you're, you're in, the companies are in business. Should they do that? Mm-hmm. Partly what happened with the FTV was suddenly the cost of not doing it became very clear. Right. That cost Intel, the recall, recalling the Pentium, cost Intel half a billion dollars. That was a much, much smaller Intel. I mean, years later, even 10 years later, Intel said, oh my God, if it happens today, you know, we are on such bigger volume. This is going to cost us now $5 billion. But even half a billion dollars. It's not small change, okay? Suddenly, it costs you have unexpected expense of half a billion dollars. So suddenly, there was an economic need. Mm-hmm. So, and in fact, one motivating big factor in the work you're doing here is there is an economic need for it. Mm-hmm. If there's no economic need, if the business need would not be there, Amazon is in business. It's not in the research business. It's mm-hmm. in the business business. That's right. So, um, so first of all, there has to be an, an economic need, and there has to be the technology has to come at the price that makes sense for the business. Right. FDF suddenly changed the economic equation. It suddenly said the cost of not doing it can be very high, mm-hmm. and so suddenly people say, "Okay, now the business need, the business need is there. Now let's work on the capability." And so you suddenly saw companies starting to develop in-house technology and, uh, and the EDA industry yeah, start developing. Yeah. But first of all, because, you know, I mean, we come from academia, you're kind of purist. Program should have no bugs. Right. <laughs> but of course, this is not reality. In real life, we all use tools. You know, this system is full of bugs. Everything we use has bugs. Okay. Yeah. The question is how severe are the bugs? What is the cost of having such a bug? But... You know, one of one of the shock that I discovered when I started working with Intel is, how do you decide to to do what's called tape out? Yeah. You've designed, design, you simulate. When do you decide to go to tape out? And answer it. It's a management decision. Somebody look at the at the at the discovery rate for for bugs. The two two factor discovery rate and severity rate. And at some point, somebody rolls the dice and says, you know, we can continue to debug this forever. Right. But we have a business to run here. Right. So we're going out. Yeah. And we'll discover, first of all, we'll discover you do you have post silicon yeah. and you have early customers. You know, we still have some chances to report it. And then the product still has bugs, okay? And then they have a way after that you can still, you know, do updates in the EPROM. There are all kind of ways to how to deal with bugs. You can master bug in the operating system. There are all kind of ways to deal with bugs. And so at the end of the day, it's not there is no dispute. It has to be correct. Has to be 
more correct. Mm-hmm. But that's an account, again, it's a, it's an, it, then it's a, business, it's a business case. So, so I guess it yeah. fits in the, the, aid, the, the thing that's interesting about AWS is that with the critical mass, they're able to increase utilization, which drops the price. Everything, uh, the price of everything goes down, which then creates more critical mass. Yeah. So you have more cust- customers can join AWS and they get all the benefits uh, with decreasing costs, more proof. And so you're saying that basically the the cost of doing formal is high, but but it makes you, you business sense, it. and then it's amortized. It, it, it has yeah. in the industry. Yeah. Okay, so first of all, it has to be a business need. If yeah. you want it to be adopted by industry, it has to be a business need. And the business need very often now you say, okay, guys, give me the capability. Yeah, and give me the capability in a in a price that we can specify. All the way to, in some cases, you know, Intel would say in some cases, look, the correctness of mathematical functions, I'm going to hire a mathematician like John Harrison yeah. and say, just just prove that, you know, what is it? The, the, the <laughs> transcendental functions are right. implemented exactly. correctly. Yeah. And um, it's not a scalable solution, but it's a solution because right. it's one There's, implementation it's that so has... Important. It's yeah. so important. One implementation has... has you know, hundreds of millions of users. So we are going to even use very expensive technology, which right. is manual work by a person, by a high paid person, but right. it, it makes economic sense. So another question is, um, so many of the tools that we build, many of the tools that you have used or you've built, your students have built, these days are calling SMT SAT solver. So there's yeah. a particular kind of right. solver. Right. And yeah. Uh, many of us in my team, and I, I know your students, have actually worked on these tools, and we've done scientific advances that got solid solvers. But all of us are puzzled about why they're so great. Uh, and so, uh, so we, so someone in the team was asking if you had, if you could explain at a theoretical level the impressive performance of these tools, uh, the SAT in particular, and then I, I have, a, I have an idea about why SMT, but let's talk about SAT solvers. Well, so what happened with SAT is kind of really. Absolutely amazing phenomenon. Okay. Because as we said, the, the, first of all, the, the, if, in fact, if you dig further, you find people start thinking about SAT in the 19th century. Uh-huh. They didn't fo- use it, this terminology, okay? They, they talk about Boolean reasoning, inf- inf- inference, but then we know it's all about Boolean satisfiability. Yeah. So you find people in, in the 19th century saying, we need a better method for Boolean inference. Uh-huh. Okay? Faster method, faster method. Remember, this is all by hand. Yeah. But still, want, they wanted faster, fast, better algorithms. Um, and then people start working on it very early. I mean, basically, ENIAC is 46. The initial commercialization is early 50s of computer. And very quickly, people start, start mechanizing logic. And oh, so did they, did they program SAT solvers in the ENIAC? Uh, ENIAC, no, but as I said, the, the first project of, of already uh, doing theorem, theorem proving, Boolean, uh, proposition of theorem proving uh-huh. is like 1956. Okay, very early, not ENIAC, but 10 years later. Yeah, okay. Very Got early. And, and then you have Davis Putnam in the first paper, amazingly, I still i am blown by that, yeah. funded by the NSA. Okay? Mm-hmm. The work started by the NSA. The paper is not declassified, but... Somebody had the, the, the foresight then to think, this is important. Mm-hmm. And the progress was incredibly slow. We had DPLL, you know, by the time I'm a student, I mean, these people also, most people said, this mm-hmm. is complete. these yeah. people are wasting their time. And by the 90s, they can solve problems with maybe hundreds of variables, right. which are so far from, from application, that nobody takes them seriously. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly we, you have a sequence of 
algorithmic breakthroughs. Yeah. We're still making dramatic progress. Right. Every year, the solver are getting better and better and better. Yeah. Okay. And this was supposed to be a hard problem. We or people said, NP complete. And we have this magical term, doesn't mean matter what it is, but NP complete for us means hard. Yeah. And suddenly this hard problem, in practice, is not so hard. This is, I think this yeah. is a, one of the most beautiful, yeah. right now we have this beauty, yeah. beautiful problem, yeah. which is the theoreticians say it's supposed to be hard. Yeah. The, um, the, the algorithmic people yeah. say, yeah, it's not so hard. Yeah. And how do we bridge that gap? So to connect that to AWS stuff, so, so for example, we have this, service called Zelkova, which uh, allows uh, us to answer questions about resource policies, identity policies. And this is used in a number of servers, like config and IoT device defender. It's on uh, S3 console, but also S3 um, mainline now. And uh, we call many, many millions of times a day, we call... Uh, Sat solver, an extension of yeah. Sat solver called yeah, SMT yeah. solver, yeah. and it explores absolutely enormous state spaces within uh, no t- just yeah. uh, milliseconds. Yeah. I mean, it's it's absolutely the performance is absolutely incredible, and it becomes like electricity. You can just you can convert all of your problems into these problems and call the tool, and it gives you an answer instantaneously. And so the, it just unlocks so many possibilities. And so everything else we're doing, uh, unroll like proving the bootloader code. Uh, in uh, the for the infrastructure of AWS, proving that that the S two N the TLS implementation we use in Amazon is uh, that the handshake protocol is correct or HMAC is correct, all of this gets converted to these calls to these to these set solvers, and it's it's insane. So the other the other uh, invention that I think is really amazing, yeah. and we use tremendously, and it actually gets used in satisfiability modular theories or SMT yes. solvers is this idea of abstraction where you uh, you convert a much larger problem, you lose some detail, but you maintain the correctness of the answer. So you actually convert it to a problem that's less precise, but the if you get an answer, the answer will be correct. And then you incrementally refine that abstraction. So you start with a very, very coarse abstraction, hope it works, and then incrementally refine. And that's what SMT is doing essentially. And, and then and then in many tools and programs, like we use this in Amazon all the time too, we have automated methods of taking programs and then refining the abstraction. And then all of that, all of those queries get actually reduced down to the set solver. So. Mm-hmm. And every model, you know, abstraction is, is an art because you have to retain the essential details and abstract away the inessential details. And you have to know what is essential and what is inessential. So abstraction is an incredibly powerful tool. And in fact, very often when you say, why are we, why are we learning this? Why should students learn algebra? Mm-hmm. The real goal to learn algebra is to learn how to abstract. Mm-hmm. Where time is beginning to run short, uh, a couple of the questions. Um, so we're well on our way towards automate. We're we're automating more and more reasoning. Yeah, yeah. And uh, will uh, now perhaps now machine learning comes into play and we can discover uh, tactics heuristics that we couldn't have even conceived of. Like for example, as the, as they've done for example with the game Go. I'm wondering how long until for example we have tools that are automatically proving theorems that were known. Previously, the answer was unknown, like Goldbach's conjecture or, or uh, 
Is it is it the, the ten point, years? Is it a hundred years? Is it five years? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I would never put a timeline okay. because this, I, I don't think this is a realistic. It's a, it's a good exercise. But there is another trend in mathematics that goes okay. before we automate it, yeah. which is formalizing Formalize mathematics. Yeah. Formalizing yeah. mathematics. Yeah. I think if you want to see what's happening, yeah. that has to take place first. Yeah. Okay. And what's taking place, and the speed is something remain to be seen. Yeah. It is so, some mathematicians realizing that the kind of pen and pencil, you know, yeah. you know, chalk, uh, you know, chalk proofs and, and or whiteboard kind of proofs. When they get to a set, certain level of complexity, just the human brain has a hard time just coping with it. There are certain proofs that are just so complex. There is a famous a classification of uh, simple finite groups. It's right. called the monster theorem. It, apparently, it covers like 5,000 pages. That's what uh, George Gantier is. And one of the things that George Gantier yeah. has, has done. Yes, yeah. George Gantier, that's partly what, yeah. what he has done. So it turns out at AWS now, we have some of the world's best people who do these mechanical proofs. So, they, yeah. so John Harrison, for example, yeah. uh, and his Hall Light Theorem Prover converts yeah. really deep fundamental mathematics into the mechanical form and then drives a mechanical theorem prover and has been applying that to the foundations of crypto. Uh, another question I wanted to ask you uh, is, so what are the open issues for us now? Like, uh, so we're automating reasoning. We have some good practical problems in the space of security, for example. So uh, your PhD students who are joining this year, what are you saying? You should be looking at this thing. This will be the the thing that that the, the sort of open challenge that we need to make some progress on? I think if you look, if I look at all of computer science right now, and yeah. say what is the most important area in computer science, I would say it's privacy and security. Uh -huh. Because we've created a, a colossal mess, uh -huh. and it's just on us. And the answer is we never gave it enough importance. And for complex reason, the economics somehow was not there. Uh -huh. Because, you know, now you have customer that says this is security, is for me a must. Yeah. But until now, yeah. you know, product always held on functionality. Security was always secondary. When Microsoft was selling uh, Windows, it was just on functionality. Security was secondary, okay? So the people who do, you know, other companies have to come to provide the security for Windows, right? You have all these virus scanners and all these other things. Somehow, it wasn't, the people who built Windows never said, oh, number one, it should be secure. That was not the way they were thinking, because the market didn't operate that way. I think something are changing, and partly now it's the, the business environment is such that people do this kind of business on the in the cloud. They say, we must have security there. Mm -hmm. This is this is now an absolute business requirement. Yeah. But until now, it didn't happen. So we basically are running human civilization on, on, excuse me, on crappy foundations because we never put enough attention to it. Right. And now we are discovering that this is... I mean, I don't know, the news, I mean, you know, our democracy have been hacked. So I think if there is something we must do in computer science mm -hmm. is create better, better, uh, more secure systems. Mm -hmm. So I think what, what you're doing and looking at on a bigger scale, dealing with security is incredibly important. So one thing that's happened here at AWS is we've built tools and they've been great. And we're actually getting 
a lot of engineers who don't have this background now wanting to learn more about the techniques and use the tools and actually develop in the tools. And so we're, the, the line is blurring between formal methods expert and software engineer. And so you're upstream teaching the students who will be the people we hire two years from now, three years from now. So how, so now there is an industrial career path for people doing formal methods. How are you? Um, how is that changing what you're teaching and what you're telling your students? So what I try to do when I teach now in both undergrad but also with with my graduate students is bridge the gap with I think between the theoretical part of this and the more empirical part, more more engineering part. We call it algorithmic engineering. Okay, the people who think about strengths of proof systems and the people who build such solvers. And the, what, what I, I tell my students now is kind of what we discussed before, that yeah, you can, prove some, you can prove some nice theorem, but if you try to implement it, you'll get new insights. And, right. and first of all, you'll have, if you have a nice theory to implement, it will give better algorithms, and this will give you new insights, and you'll have new theoretical problems mm-hmm. out of this. So there is, a, there is a kind of a nice feedback loop that you can go back and forth. And in fact, some of the work I've done on, on a on what we call constraint sampling and counting, mm-hmm. we started with a theory that, that already existed and has not been touched now for almost 20 years because the theoretician says, okay, we solved the problem. Right. We show that it's in uh, some complexity right. class and we are done. Right. And I said to my students, we're going to implement it. And we couldn't get it to work beyond N equals 16, which is, you know, is a tiny number. Yeah. And it was so small that when my student says, you know, can I publish a paper? And I said, no, they're going to laugh at us. If we submit, we, get, we have done it for n equal 16. I said, we have to do it at least n equal 1,000. Until then, it's just, it's just not serious. Right. So we had to go back to the theory. We had to go back. It wasn't just that we use uh, you know, more processors. Just We did, couldn't just throw processors the problem. We had to go back and do a better theory in order to do this. Yeah. And so if you, if you do both, then you end up having, I would say, both better theory and better and better uh, algorithmic engineering. Yeah. Both of them can go together. Right. And this kind, of, I think, this uh, this nice uh, the, the fact that the complementary is, I in some sense, to me, it prepares people both for an academic career, because I think that would be a more productive line of research for them. But at the same time, these are the people that can come and uh, work in industry. They will be challenged by industrial problem. They will abstract it away. We talk about abstraction. They will abstract it and come up with an algorithmic solution and they'll implement it and see how well it works. I mean, it's this kind of feedback loop, positive, uh, what do you call it, virtuous cycle mm-hmm. that I think both leads to better research in academia, but also is more appropriate for an industrial right. environment. I mean, the environment that, that I used to have when I just started IBM, which we were just we just could sit and think deep thought and publish theoretical paper almost does not exist right. uh, today. Right. I know very few places where you could, that's what you can do, just right. sit there and write theoretical papers. Right. Well, Moshe, it's been a pleasure as always. Uh, I could talk to you all day long, but yeah. we're yeah. at time. So okay. thanks very much for coming in. And, uh, my pleasure, yeah. my pleasure. Yeah.